Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more, and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Matthew 26 31 through 46. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. If you want to have those ready, we're going to be walking through uh, a passage in the final week known as Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' early, er, earthly ministry before he went to the cross. And if you're visiting with us this morning, my name's Mark. I get to be one of the ministers here at the, the church. But I want to tell you that you're coming uh, into us at the end of a series that we've done through the book of Matthew. Matthew is one of Jesus' disciples, and he wrote a history of Jesus' life with the intention of highlighting the kingdom of God. So we have focused on the passages. We haven't covered every passage, but we focus in this series on the passages that talk about Jesus as king and those that talk about his kingdom. And what we're finding is whenever they talk about the king, we learn about the kingdom. And whenever he talks about the kingdom, we learn about the king. And what we want to do is focus our hearts and minds on who King Jesus is and what is he doing in our world and how do we join him in it. We are going to be looking at a passage today that actually jumps over a previous passage, which is the story of the Last Supper. It's not that that's insignificant, but I want to focus our minds as we enter into the Passion Week, as we enter into Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I want to give us something to think about. This is not a message of information. It's a message of acknowledgement. It's a message of appreciation. 
I hope that you'll grant me the opportunity to help you think this week and then carve some time out to keep thinking all week long of the passion of Jesus and what he did for us. You see, it was Thursday night. The Passover meal had been served. The prayers were prayed. The wine was poured. The bread was distributed. Jesus took the moment to take the passing of the wine and the bread. He memorialized it in what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, which we just celebrated as a church and reminded ourselves of as he asked us to. Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem and he would be delivered over to the religious leaders and that they would take his life. He cautioned his disciples, this will happen, but don't, don't stop with that. Understand that it's going to appear that I'm gone for a while and then I'm going to come back. He'd given them all this information. We noticed that earlier in Jesus' ministry, the disciples weren't picking up on it. I want you to know that it's recorded that at the Last Supper, they were sorrowful. It was starting to weigh on them. They were beginning to understand that Jesus wasn't talking uh, in theory. He was talking in practice, and this was about to happen to him. The Passover meal is finished, and in Matthew 26, verse 30, Matthew says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's very common, I'm told, that during the Passover celebration, uh, during the meal, that sections of Psalm 113 to 118 would have been read or chanted or prayed over during the Passover celebration. I don't know if right now you're in the word, if you have a a study you're going through or a, a reason you're reading in the Bible, but if you're not, I would really encourage you this week to read Psalm 113 through 118 this week. Just take one per day into Resurrection Sunday. And as you're reading it, remember that this would have been the song that they would have sung that night. This would have been what they said. And as you read it, put yourself in that moment. Put yourself in that position and see what happens. Because here's what I want you to know. It says that when they sung, they went to the Mount of Olives. They went to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. It seems to me that when God wants to do something big, he starts in a garden. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Find out that on the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, where does he take the disciples? He takes them to a garden. Go to the book of Revelation. And at the very end, you're going to see that God is bringing a garden city that's going to recreate the entire world. When God does something big, he always starts in a garden. And I want you to see tonight that this is not a prelude to the week of passion. This is one of the most passionate moments in all of scripture. On the Mount of Olives, which is about uh, two miles away from the city of Jerusalem, they would have gone down through the valley, uh, up the Kidron Valley, and they would have come up on the other side into this, on the Mount of Olives, and there was a garden. The name's Gethsemane. It means oil press. A big stone, a wood structure, olives laid down. The stone goes over the olives and squishes out all the juice, and it's collected in another place. Can you see the crushing metaphor that Jesus chooses to put himself in a place where things are crushed, as he himself is then going to be crushed for the sins of the world. It's beautiful poetry and symmetry within the text. Scholars suggest that it's probably close to midnight by the time the Passover meal is ended and they get to the garden. His ministry is coming to a horrifying close. He has preached his last sermon. He has eaten his last Passover meal. He himself is the lamb that was sacrificed for the people at that meal. He has told the disciples, one of you will betray me. And they all question whether they could. Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And while all that is going on in the room, Judas looks at Jesus and insincerely says, is it me? 
And Jesus says, it's as you've said. And Judas slips out of the room because Jesus said, go and do what you plan to do. Interesting. He doesn't beg him to stay. He sends him out. And Judas slips out of the room. They leave the upper room and they head across that two-mile walk in the darkness of the night through the valley and up the mountainside till they get to the garden. You see, if we will spend just a little bit of time thoughtfully, not rushing through it, not dismissing it with I know this, if we'll spend just a little bit of time respecting and honoring what Jesus went through in that garden, I think you'll be able to more deeply respect and honor the king and the kingdom he offers you. This is an exercise of recognition and appreciation, not new information. Something to contemplate, to meditate, and to simply appreciate. Let's look at what was going on in that garden that night and help prepare our hearts for this week as we celebrate the passion of Jesus for the lost of the world. Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow. He was overwhelmed with sorrow. I can become uncomfortable with that word overwhelmed. How can God, how can the God man be overwhelmed? It's not a sign of weakness. Verse 37, this is what Matthew tells us took place. So the, I want you to picture with me now, there were 13 of them. Judas leaves, there's now 12. They go out of the city, down through the valley, up to the mountain, the big hillside. They go into the garden, now there's 12. It says, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him. So these four separate themselves. I don't know how far they separated themselves, but they separated themselves from the others. And he began to become sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. There are moments for the sake of hyperbole that you know what hyperbole is, an exaggerated exaggeration. It's like over the top. There's moments that we use expressions, right? Probably every one of us uh, unartfully have said, I'm starving to death. Now, I found out with my father, you never told him you were starving because here's what would happen. There'd be an hour and a half lecture about who was actually starving, how you've never been starving, how that's disrespectful. And by the time his lecture was done, you were what? Starving. Okay, so, so it was an exaggeration. We say things like, I'm so hot, I'm going to die, or I'm going to melt. We know we're being facetious. We know we're overstating it for the point of power and impact. Do not think for a second when Jesus said to his disciples, I am overwhelmed that he was not overwhelmed. He was not exaggerating. The impending death, the destruction of his human flesh, the emotions he was going through are real. It doesn't diminish him. Few of us will ever know the moment of our death. Some hear the doctors say, well, I'll give you four to six months. And some people are told uh, you have a few days to remain. But even in that moment, think about it. It says in John 18, verse four, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. That startles me. If I rush through it, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get to the cross. Let's get to the resurrection, right? No, understand for just a few moments in appreciation what this man did for you and me. He knew it was coming. He knew not only the moment, he knew the method. And he chose to stay there anyway. He, he was overwhelmed. Is this a sign of weakness? Is this a sign that his faith was, was lacking, that it was wavering? Absolutely not. 
The word used for overwhelmed that Jesus used that Matthew recorded meant with so much sorrow to cause his own death. He was going to die from the sorrow that was on his soul. Not just a sorrow for himself, but he knew what was coming. He knew the perversity of the Jewish people he came to save. He knew how they were twisting his words and they knew they were twisting his words. He he knew how they were not giving people around the chance to hear what Jesus was doing. He knew the wickedness that would bring upon his death. He knew that within moments, Judas would come and kiss him. A man that he loved and served would betray him for money of all the things in the world to betray Jesus for money. He knew the desertion of his friends when he most needed them. He knew the the unjust condemnation. He knew the trial would not be fair and yet they would appease their own hearts by giving him this fake trial so it looked like their hands were clean. He knew that Pilate was a coward and would not do the right thing but instead turn him over. He knew all that was going to take place but Jesus was not just overwhelmed with sorrow for himself. The prophet said he carried our sorrow too. It's like when he cried at Lazarus' tomb what death was doing to the world. I don't know about you, but it has been a tough spring. I'm tired of death. How about you? I'm tired of the phone ringing. Another good person gone. I can't do anything about it. I don't have to like it. And the sorrow of the distress put on families and friends and communities when crimes and other things bring about the death of good people, it's heartbreaking. And many in this room are carrying this. We we don't understand the depth to which Jesus carried it, but imagine what it does to us and then place the sorrow of the entire world on one man's shoulders. And he did that for you and me. So much so that Luke tells us in Luke 22, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Medical field tells us his body was breaking down. The grief and sorrow was so much that it was killing him. He was also tempted. This is another one of those points that makes us wonder, how can he be God and be tempted? Verse 41, Matthew tells us, watch and pray. Jesus said to the disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Temptations were real. In all of Jesus' agony, he was still concerned for the disciples. He said to the disciples in that moment, stay awake, pray. Think about it. If you knew you had less than 12 hours to live, if you knew that within 12 hours you would, your life would be over, how would you spend that time? I, I, I've thought about that a lot the last couple of weeks for this sermon. What would I do? I probably, I mean, instantly I have had conversations with my friends. Like if you knew you had one year to live, what would you do? And I got to go play golf at this place and I'd go do this and all these silly temporary things that wouldn't appease anything. Jesus knew he had 12 hours to live and what did he choose to do? He chose to pray. He chose to get away in a garden and fellowship with his father. He chose to reach into his commitment to love his father and obey him. He didn't choose to amuse himself, appease himself, or entertain himself. He invested in his soul to to be committed, to be courageous, to remain strong. And in the midst of all of that, he was tempted. Why was he tempted? Because he didn't do anything wrong. If he'd have walked away from this commitment... If he would have said and left us up to our own devices, it would have been fair. It would have been reasonable. It would have been justifiable. And he chose not to. Three times he steps away to pray by himself 
falls on his knees and talks to his father. I don't think it's coincidental that three times Matthew says he broke away from those three men to pray. And yet it reminds me in Matthew chapter four that Matthew also said three times in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted. Verse 44. So he left them and he went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. The struggle was not theater. Jesus was not being dramatic. He was not trying to teach an object lesson. He himself was the object lesson. What he was going through was real. He was being pressed in an oil press like no other human being has ever been pressed before. And there's Satan. I don't know what Satan tempted him with, but I know this, Satan always tempts us with shortcuts. Satan always gives us an opportunity. Think back in the garden. Well, you can eat of that tree. It's not really going to kill you. And God's just worried that if you ate of that tree, you'll be like him. He gives us a shortcut to not trust God. He did that in the wilderness. If you do this, you can have bread. If you do this, the world will know who you are in advance. If you do this, the whole world will bow down. I'll give you all the power in the world. The shortcuts are enticing. And in the moment of being enticed, Jesus prayed not to work himself, God, can I have this? He prayed that he'd have the courage to continue to say no. We learn a lot from Jesus in the garden, how we're to stand for faith. Can you imagine what Satan would say to you and me? Are you sure you want to do this? Look at these guys, they're asleep. They don't even care. Some of them aren't even going to follow you after some. Look at Judas. He's a perfect example that it doesn't matter who you are. Just take care of you, Jesus. Let them take care of themselves. That's the way this ought to work. And each and every time Jesus prayed, not my will be done, but yours. Sorrow, temptation. Jesus was cursed. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but one of the things that I think, based on what the scriptures say about the moment in time and what he was going through was that Jesus knew that the curse of all mankind was going to fall on him. The Apostle Paul would tell the church in Corinth these words, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. To the Galatian church, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. I don't know at what point all the sins of the world came down upon Jesus. And I can't suggest to you clearly and with a clean heart that in the garden that this was happening. But I'm telling you this. He knew what the prophecy said. He knew he would drink from the cup of God's wrath. He knew that God's wrath was poured out because of his love for mankind, that what sin had done, that the wrath would come down. He knew what was coming his way and that curse was on his head and he was choosing to accept it. It would weigh down on all of us. Every injustice every minor and major infraction, every choice we make to tell God no, the punishment was laid upon him. And he knew this. And amazingly, he said yes. This, sorrow, temptation, and the curse was in that garden. And in his last waking moments, he dealt with it. He prayed through it. He stayed strong and had courage. Jesus was alone too. Yes, there were 11 other men in the garden, but he was alone. Nobody understood. Nobody was there giving him strength. It it wasn't seen. But verse 43, when he came back, he found them sleeping. I used to trash the disciples when I was younger. Before I had been shown 
real truth and, and actually spent time thinking about it, I just thought, are you guys kidding me? He's been telling you this is going to happen. You couldn't spend the last night with him. And then I wondered how much regret they had their entire life that they slept while he hurt. And then Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22 that the disciples were sleeping from sorrow. It's not a good experience to go through depression. Most of us don't know that we're going through depression while we're going through depression. It's not till afterwards that we stop and go, huh. Some people deal with depression their entire lives. Medicines can help, therapy can help. Nothing wrong with being depressed. It's not a sin to be depressed. Having gone through seasons of it myself, there's, you're just trying to get through it and trying to figure it all out. When you've gone through a season like that, have you found how much sleep is a respite? How sometimes you just want to close your eyes and fall asleep so you can turn the world off? So instead of sitting in judgment on the disciples, listen to what Luke tells us. I'm not making excuses for them, but there is a reason that they slept. They were so sorrowful, starting back with the Lord's Supper. They were so sorrowful at what was taking place that they just fell asleep. It makes sense, doesn't it? And Jesus warned them, hey, just around the corner is going to be the worst morning of your life. And he knew what would happen to them. Psalm 22, which Jesus would quote on the cross when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Also contains in verse 11, these words, for there was none to help him. He had people with him and he was still alone. This was on him. This wasn't an us thing. It wasn't a we thing. It was a him thing. I'm sure Satan was whispering in his ear, look, they don't care. There's nothing they can do. This is all on you, and they don't respect it. Temptation, grief, distress, loneliness, and he stayed the course. In the midst of all of that terror, Jesus chose. He had a choice, and he chose to stay, to stay the course. Verse 42, he went away a second time, and he prayed. Listen to the words. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Don't miss this point. In the very first garden, a man had a choice and he chose my will over God's will. In the next garden, a man had a choice and he chose God's will over his own. Look at the impact of both of those decisions. Instead of saying, this isn't good for me, so I won't, Jesus said, this isn't good for me, but I will. And by that sacrifice, what was bad for him became good for us. Amen? Rushing through this moment dismisses the pain and sacrifice that man paid for you and me. So we know this. He was full of grief and distress. He was tempted. He was isolated. He was lonely. He was tried, but Jesus was powerfully faithful. In the midst of all of this, he stood strong. Matthew chapter 26, verse 46. This gets my blood rushing. So he hears them coming and he says to the disciples who are asleep, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I want you to think about what just happens in this moment. Jesus doesn't sit back and wait for it to come to him. He has set his feet. He has made his resolve that he is going to do what God wants him to do. And God says, I need you to do this for them. And Jesus stands up. He says to his disciples, let's go. He approaches the threat. He doesn't stand and wait for it. Do you see it? How many of us would have the courage to charge after Judas? I would charge after him in a different way. You know what I mean? But he doesn't. 
And John chapter 18 is a fascinating passage because it says as Jesus approaches them, as they approach him, it's rulers, religious rulers, Roman centurions, and Judas. Now, the Roman centurions are paid killers. They're not like our police officers who have rules and regulations that restrict and give them permission to act in certain ways in law situations. Our police are good people who try to do the best they can under the restrictions and regulations they're given. The Roman centurions, they were the law. They never had to answer for their behavior. Take out a Jew, who cares? They're not Roman, they're dogs. These centurions approach. And in John 18, John, who's there, says that Jesus approaches them as they come into the garden with their torches and their swords and everything. And they approach and Jesus walks up to them and says, who are you looking for? He knows. And they say, Jesus from Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And they all fall on their face, ready to die. That should have been in the movie, The Passion. Because these men knew he raised the dead, he healed the sick, he cast out demons. They saw the evidence. They expected this was a death penalty to them. And then Jesus, in all of his beauty and humility, says, stand up. And they get back up. He says, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am, I'm him. Don't touch these guys. And then Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off an ear, but we'll talk about that another day. (laughs) See, He was alone. And there he stood, by faith, stepping into the call God gave him. He approaches it. Rise up, let us go. And he meets Judas. And Judas kisses him, and Jesus lets him. Wow. Look at John 10. The words of Jesus. I laid down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. That's a statement. What's happening in this garden is 100% under the control of Jesus. He is not being played. He's not being manipulated. He's entering into it by faith. He's teaching us what we can do. He could have walked away and he chose not to. Peter takes out a sword, cuts off a a, a guy's ear. Jesus is like, Peter, knock it off. Puts it back on. He said, Peter, you pull out the sword, you're going to die by the sword. This is not what my kingdom's about. It's not by dominating. It's not by power. It's by love. It's by strength and by faith that Jesus has changed the world. And 2,000 years later, people like us are gathering in a place like this to remember this man and what he did for us. It wasn't the sword. It was his gentle spirit. Peter would write these words. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. For Christ also suffered. Don't look at the garden as a a painting. Don't look at the garden as a song. Spend time in the garden watching this man suffer and choose. Have an opportunity to walk away, but choose. Have people who don't understand him, but he chooses. He made choices over and over to be our Passover lamb, to give his blood to cleanse us. The purpose of the cross was accepted in the garden. There is no cross if there is no garden. If there's not a moment that Jesus sets his feet and says to his father, I'm going to do what you want me to do because I know who you are and I trust you. If you and I don't spend time in the garden, we'll never set our feet. Jesus chose the cross in the garden and we must choose to receive the sacrifice 
in the same garden to follow him, to trust him. What are you supposed to do with this? Think. I'm going to be very direct this morning. This is Passion Week. This is a triumphal entry, as Chip said, where everyone said Jesus was awesome, and by Monday they'd forgotten who he was. Let us not forget. Let us not forget what he did in that garden. This week, there's no podcast you'll listen to, no audio book you'll listen to, there's no television program you watch, there's no sporting event, maybe this afternoon, but there's really no sporting event that should keep you from thinking about the power of the cross. This is Passion Week, church. May we engage our minds. May we meditate and go deeply. May we turn off the noise of a world that seeks to entertain us and keep us busy so we don't think about our woes and we don't think about our problems. And let's do something real this week. Let's find some time as individuals and families to turn off the noise, to turn off the entertainment. There's nothing wrong with having some of that. But when that's all we get, we never stop and think what this man did for us so that when we gather on Good Friday to remember and to praise and to celebrate. We have set our hearts on worship. This is a week that's all about Jesus because Jesus made this week all about us. Will you set your hearts on him? Will you meditate on what he gave you? Will you receive thoughtfully and deeply in an act of worship what this man went through so that he could deliver us to the Father? This is our challenge. This is what we do with the text about our king. We worship our king. At the back of this room are two tables with lamps lit on those. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment. And even after the service has ended, if you want someone to pray with you, or maybe you've never bowed a knee before Jesus and accepted what he offered you, what a perfect opportunity to begin a conversation about what it means to become a follower of Jesus who understands what he offered you in that garden that one Thursday evening that carried into Friday morning where he paid such a price that you might remember what he did and know who you are because of who the king is. If we can walk with you in any fashion or form during the song, you can go to the table. After the service, go to the table. We're a community of believers. This is not an individual thing. You make your own choice, but God has blessed us to walk together as a church encouraging and strengthening one another for a greater cause. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.